You're listening to an IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education. Powered by UCL Minds. This is Research for the Real World. Conversations with researchers about the paths they've taken to shape our everyday lives. Research for the Real World. Hello, I'm Dr. Laura Eathway and I'm a Senior Research Fellow in the Centre for Education Policy and Equalising Opportunities at UCL Institute of Education. It's also my first time presenting the podcast and I'm absolutely delighted to be here. On this season of Research for the Real World, we're going to be recovering how social sciences and the humanities can help tackle global challenges. The power of social sciences and the humanities is no matter how small, large, difficult or abstract the challenge may be, We can use these topics to help us navigate the world around us and therefore as a team we want to explore that a little bit further and when it comes to challenges none has been more difficult right now than how children and families have handled the pandemic so on this episode i'm absolutely delighted to be talking to professor alice bradbury alice specializes in research on the impact of policy on classroom practices and inequalities in terms of class gender and particularly race in a previous life she was also worked as a primary school teacher which really helps shape her current research focus and priorities. She's also written extensively on primary assessment policy and the role of data, including the book's Understanding Early Years Inequality in 2013 and the datification of primary and early years education in 2017 with Guy Robert Holmes. In 2016, she was awarded the Beera Public Engagement and Impact Award for her work in challenging the goals set out for baseline assessment, which were used for assessing and tracking the progress in four and five year olds within the primary system. This led to the subsequent withdrawal of the policy as announced by the Department for Education in April of that year. Her current book, Ability, Inequalities and Post-Pandemic Schools is also out now. So hi, Alice, welcome to the podcast. It's been a busy year for you and we'll touch on some of that work in a moment. But firstly, we'd love to know a little bit more about you and how you became interested and involved in studying education. Hi, Laura. And first of all, thanks for having me on the podcast. I suppose my kind of journey to this point probably started quite young. I grew up in uh, in London in kind of very diverse area and I went to very kind of mixed schools, a primary and a, com- a comprehensive school and an FE college to do my A-levels. And then I went to quite an elite university and um, and I found I was really surprised by just how white and how privileged it was. And I think that was a real kind of moment of uh, realising how complex and important some of these kind of issues about race and class and education are. So when I trained as a teacher straight after my degree, I went, I chose to work in schools in kind of very mixed areas of London, in Camden, and then in Tower Hamlets. And I sort of continued that interest in issues about inequality and social difference and combined that with sort of interest in teaching, I suppose, in classroom practice. And I sort of combined that with uh, an interest in classroom practice and how what teachers do is affected by policy and the sort of politics of education. And that led me to the Institute where I did a, a master's in social justice and education and then a PhD and actually ended up I'm 
used to be the programme leader for social justice and education and teach the module uh, the sociology of race and education. So I've been very lucky to kind of do lots of interesting projects all related to primary education, early years and issues, as you say, about assessment and policy particularly kind of, you know, there's always this underlying theme of inequality, which sort of inspires me, I suppose. That's super interesting. And I I guess that's really helped with your latest projects, which have been looking at the disruption of COVID and how that's impacted schools, children and parents. So would you be able to tell our listeners what was involved in some of your latest work and what did you find? So these latest projects, I came back from maternity leave planning on kind of working on my book about ability and trying to kind of keep going with the things I had been previously researching before COVID. And everything was different because it was sort of May 2020 and suddenly, uh, you know, the whole world had changed. And so I got involved in these two ESRC projects, both led by Gemma Moss. And Gemma has talked about them, the first one, the Duty to Care project on uh, on the podcast before. So I got involved in these two projects and the second one, Learning Through Disruption, we've just sort of begun to start talking about, put out our policy briefings and our and our reports. So the second project was really inspired by the fir- findings from the first project, which were all about how schools in different communities had had very different experiences of COVID and very different burdens of needing to care for their pupils, particularly the kind of welfare side and food and so on. And so with this second project, we wanted to delve much more deeply into some of those issues by using case studies of particular schools, seven primary schools across England, and interviewing the head and the teachers and parents as well where possible to try and get a kind of really detailed picture of what was happening in each of these schools. And we deliberately had quite a few schools in our sample where they had quite high numbers of free school meals. So we had that kind of slight interest in particularly how those schools were coping with the kind of increased pressures of of COVID. There were a lot of findings from this project. You can imagine, you know, you start to have seven different stories about how schools have coped. There's a lot of different issues that come out. But the the one that I think I think is sort of closest to my heart, really, and, and the one that I, I feel like we have a real role in getting out there and amplifying is this issue about how much schools were doing in for particularly in high poverty communities. So we found that schools were providing food, clothing, sometimes providing a sort of safe place to stay. Sometimes staff were paying for food out of their own pockets. There was such a huge range of provision by schools that we have argued really that their schools are sort of propping up the welfare state. They Often the schools found that they couldn't, there weren't the kind of services that they needed to help them like the child and adolescent mental health services or other kind of social workers and so on. And the schools were often having to sort of deal with everything here and then because they were the ones that the, the parents and the children were contacting. So we've, we've really argued all the way through that, you know, schools have, have always been a source of support for children in poverty, but COVID has really demonstrated how vital they are in providing those kind of services because of some of the lack of other support from the welfare state. You mentioned just now that you had transferred some of those findings into policy briefs. What's been the reaction to to those policy briefs by policymakers um, and other stakeholders? We've had quite a lot of good responses from organisations who are really kind of close to what's going on in schools, like the teachers unions and so on. And we've been kind of 
trying to get them into more kind of political spaces with ministers and so on. That's sort of not currently ongoing, really. But the, the response certainly from the education community is to say, yes, we know all this has been happening and thank you for telling people. Because one of the biggest issues has always been that people were not aware quite how much schools were doing. It isn't recognised how much schools do for for families, particularly in, in dealing with poverty. And they aren't funded enough to deal with it. So one of the issues has always been that schools aren't recognised for what they do. And that leads to them not being funded well enough for what they do as well, particularly with communities where there's high levels of poverty. So we think it's really important that this information kind of gets out there in as many channels as possible. And that means working with other educational organisations as well, doing dissemination work and trying to make sure that where we can, we can kind of emphasise those issues and, and provide evidence of the kind of level of support that schools are offering. Now, that's great to hear. You also mentioned that you had been collecting data in seven different schools and you talked about the sort of the similarity and the kind of the the golden thread throughout of those throughout those seven schools. However, obviously not all of these schools are going to be the same and there may be different circumstances. Could you tell us a little bit more about the variation across the different schools, maybe the ways in which they uh, communicated with their families? We found across these seven schools, they all had similar issues to be dealing with, but of course they responded in different ways. And we've started talking about these different sort of circumstances that schools found themselves in as as different COVID stories. Every school has its own COVID story and each one is interesting and important, but they're all different. And and of course that has implications for how we respond and, and recover. We found that actually some of the normal metrics about how you might think about schools in different circumstances began to change during COVID. So we would normally look at things like levels of free school meals as indications of levels of deprivation. But actually, we found that one of the schools in our sample with very high free school meals actually had a relatively good experience because most of their parents were employed in the public sector or in retail. So they all carried on working. And actually, they had very good communication between the parents and the school. The parents were all very happy. Actually, the system worked very well. There were relatively low levels of COVID in that area of the country. And actually, they'd had a pretty positive experience. In contrast, we had schools with lower free school meal figures to start with, who had had a really difficult time, because the local parental employment base was based in travel, And so all the parents suddenly were furloughed or lost their jobs or had reduced hours. And an entirely new community was suddenly in financial distress. The school had to deal with that. And obviously they weren't being counted in free school meal figures or any other kind of official metrics of financial need. So there was, you know, really interesting variation. Poverty has, you know, impacts in different places, in different in different ways, in different places. And we found even in the schools where they were relatively affluent, they still had pupils that they were needing to help, that they were having to deal with issues to do with digital access and so on. And they actually said that they got to know their pupils much better and their local community much better through the pandemic because they were suddenly more aware of some of the needs of some of the pupils in their school. So based on this work, has it allowed you to further consider how the pandemic has specifically impacted children through other forms of dis- uh, disruption, such as the school closures? Yeah, so as well as, as doing this project, um, I've also done another project about 
how teaching assistants work during the pandemic. And I've also done some work within my research centre, the Helen Hamlin Centre for Pedagogy. We've done some other work kind of gathering experiences of teachers and educators during the pandemic. But the other thing we've been busy doing is taking part in a rapid evidence assessment, a review of the existing literature, which is obviously kind of an emerging picture. So that was done with the International Public Policy Observatory at UCL. And it was actually commissioned by the Department for Education and SAGE, the Scientific Advisory Group on Emergencies, because they wanted to know what the what the evidence says so far. And we did a review of some of the existing literature, which is largely surveys and so on. And that came out earlier in the autumn. The thing that I think is really interesting that comes out of that, as well as the discussion about learning loss or learning disruption and all of the other kind of impacts of school closure, the thing that really interests me is the fact that when you start to look at the evidence on harms to children caused by school closure, it isn't just about them being at home or not being at school. It's the combination of the two. So when you start to see things like increased calls to childline about abuse, you also see increased risk to children in terms of domestic violence and so on. Those things are caused firstly by children being in the home more because they're simply present and there is more risk to them while they're in the, while they're in the home. But they're also not at school. And so they're not able to talk to teachers. They're not able to kind of access those other services. So that really highlights for me this, this point about how important schools are as part of the welfare system. They always have been. But particularly at these sort of these times, we realise how important schools are as part of our kind of social functioning, because they've got this really important role in in protecting children simply by having them there in school all day, as well as, of course, by providing them with food and, and other things like that. Excellent. So alongside all your COVID related research, you've also very busy writing a new book called Ability, Inequality and Post-Pandemic Schools, which is out now. Are there any key messages from your book that you'd like to highlight, particularly for policymakers or teachers? Yes, this book actually came out of a project I did a few years back on ability grouping, where we ended up collecting quite a lot of data about what teachers thought ability, the word ability was. And that got me thinking about this discourse of ability, which I think has been a bit of a thread through lots of my work, um, actually, in the past about policy and, and classroom practice. And then all of my arguments about this discourse of ability are then kind of come to the fore again in this pandemic and post-pandemic time, because all of the issues to do with educational inequality are all tied up, in my view, with discourses of ability. So one of the things, I, the, the main argument is that the discourse of ability actually reinforces and underpins educational inequality. The idea that we can measure people's ability and it's fixed and that we can use that to decide which group they sit in, what exams they sit, and so on, is very much uh, tied up with how the system continues to disadvantage groups of children from minority communities and from um, working class communities. So, so I suppose my the main things I want to say from that book are that if we're thinking about post-pandemic hopes, as I call them, is that I would want people to think about that discourse of ability as fixed and measurable and start to question the impact it has on the education system and on how we organise and prioritise what we do as teachers within the school system. 
One of my real post-pandemic hopes is that we can start to question the systems of statutory testing that we have, the assessment system that is very intensive, actually, in, in primary schools in England, far more than in most countries around the world, and that we can start to see how damaging it can be in terms of curriculum, in terms of practice, and in terms of inequality in primary schools. And I think some of the work I've done recently about how testing is being used in the pandemic has reinforced that idea, because the fact that we have cancelled most statutory assessment, but actually still continue doing assessment of five and six-year-olds from their phonics, I think really sort of shows the wrong priorities in terms of government's handling of the situation. One of the ways in which the testing regime affects children is to is to keep reinforcing that idea of ability as fixed and, and measurable and the data that we then produce and that dominates uh, teachers' lives all comes from this kind of testing and assessment regime. So one of my post-pandemic hopes is that we could start to question the impact of that assessment regime on, on children. Thanks, Alice. It's been so great to hear about your work and it really sounds like you've had an incredibly busy year. Has there been any challenges um, in trying to do impactful research um, in the midst of a pandemic? Well, there have been many, many challenges along the way. I mean, obviously, the, the biggest one for me personally was that I was working from home. I've got three small children, two at school and a baby, and trying to you know, combine looking after them with the homeschooling, with obviously doing research. I mean, it's felt sometimes like I was kind of in my own research project because we're I'm using what I'm, my own experience is to inspire my questions to parents and teachers and schools. And I'm very much caught up in all of the whole process myself as a parent. So it's been very challenging in many ways because we've had to contact people. We've had to get to know schools when we can't actually go and see them. We can't walk around the local area like we would normally do. And as someone who's done ethnographic research before, it feels very distant sometimes interviewing people who are on the other side of the country and trying trying to kind of understand their context. But that said, actually, there's also been some huge advantages. We've managed to get to people which we never normally would have had a chance to interview because we can do it all from our spare room. I haven't had to travel around the country like I used to do. And I haven't, you know, had to kind of compromise the issues to do with home life and uh, work like I used to have to do when I was doing field work. So in some ways, there's been, you know, new opportunities that have come out, from the, you know, of the move to digital. But overall, it's been very challenging. And I think we have had good opportunities to talk to people because of the online world we have been able to kind of go to a lot of meetings and contact uh, kind of high profile people and make connections which we probably wouldn't have done face to face I suppose there have been those kind of advantages I think in terms of trying to create impact because we there probably are conversations that we've managed to have which we probably previously wouldn't have been able to do. Excellent. So it's really great. It's really great to hear, you know, a really balanced story of, you know, you, we're not all robots and, you know, we're all facing challenges along the way. So thanks so much for sharing not only your research, but also the practicalities of doing that research along the way. It's been super interesting to hear not only about the findings that you found in relation to COVID um, and education, but also more broadly and like what you hope for um, the future of education as we move uh, towards a post-pandemic world. So thanks very much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. You can follow the work of Alice and her colleagues on Twitter at Alice J Bradbury, and you can learn more about her research via the links in the episode notes. Enjoyed this episode and want to find out more? 
We've been around the block and have more episodes for you to listen to whilst you walk around yours. Search IOE Podcast from wherever you get your podcasts and to find episodes from season one to 11 of Research for the Real World, as well as more podcasts from the IOE. I'm Dr. Laura Uthwaite and thank you for listening. Research for the Real World is brought to you by the IOE Marketing and Communications team in association with IOE Research Development. This podcast is presented by me, Dr. Kerry Wong, and me, Dr. Sam Sims. The theme music was created by Rob Cochran. Tatiana Sotero-Diaz is the series advisor. Amy Leibowitz is the series producer. And Jason Illigan is the executive producer of the IOE podcast. Thanks so much for downloading and listening to this IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education, University College London. 